<laughs> That's right. Great. Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Hiawatha. I know for most of you, if you're, if you're brand new, as uh, Spence and Peter were saying earlier, welcome to you. Thanks for coming to one of our gatherings. Um, we are in a series right now in the book of Judges. Peter was talking about this. Only three weeks left after this week, so we're, we're drawing it to a close. It's a 21-chapter book. Is that right? I think it's 21, yeah. Uh, but the last five chapters will be two weeks worth, so it's kind of like, you'll, you'll see more in a couple weeks why we're doing that. We're kind of lumping a lot together. Um, we're in 14 today, Judges 14, 1 to 20. If you want to turn there in a Bible you have or a phone app, that's great. A couple introductory comments on the book uh, really quickly. Judges is a book about redemption, we've been saying, uh, by way of summary throughout this series so far. Uh, redemption means to buy back from slavery. God cares about buying people out of slavery, saving the oppressed physically and spiritually, all throughout the storyline, and, and this uh, weaves right into our storyline as Christians, too, on a spiritual basis, and also in terms of how God cares for the world physically today in its New Testament era. Uh, this is an old book, though. This happens towards the beginning of the Bible. It pertains to Israel's history and story from between roughly 1400 to 1000 B.C., and the time they had, God was giving them graciously, not based on their you know, moral amazingness or anything, that they were good, but just graciously because he loved them, this land called a promised land or Canaan. There are Canaanites living there currently, but God has given that to him saying, this is a special land. It's, it's a gift. I'm, I'm starting to show the world through you that I'm drawing sinners back to myself geographically. And so this is a special land. God saying, I'm, I'm, I'm specially here. I'm present. My, my presence is everywhere. He's God. He can't be contained, but he's choosing to kind of say, this is where I am. And when you're in this land, you'll be with me. You'll Draw close to me, and I'll draw close to you, and I'll draw close to you as well, on a variety of, of levels. Now the problem is at this juncture, though, sin is running rampant, and the people of Israel are not driving out these occupying peoples who are extremely wicked, like they are. But God says, drive them out, that it might be a pure place, and that you might not syncretize religiously and, and otherwise with these wicked people. They fail to do that, and so Israel then, throughout the book, it, it's it's this downward spiral of this. It happens cyclically. If you've read the book, you know. And maybe you're seeing this, I hope you're seeing this, that things get worse as time goes on. The, the surrounding nations, the problem with them gets worse, they get more wicked, the people of Israel get worse, the judges themselves, the savior figures in the book get, get worse. But God is still redeeming. He's still showing up and showing grace to unlikely, undeserving people and using very wicked people as well. And, and Peter's talking about that. Samson is, um, in a lot of ways, the worst judge character-wise, also kind of the weirdest in some ways too, but we'll, we'll talk about that today. But it's a book about redemption, God graciously redeeming people from a place of, in this case, like physical slavery, but also spiritual slavery, because their sin is what got them into this context in the first place. Sin is this underlying, like, undercurrent of the whole book. People doing bad things to themselves and other people, and running a million miles an hour away from God, saying, I don't need him. And it looks like a lot of horrific things, like child sacrifice and other things, and also things that they don't even realize they're doing wrong. That, that's a massive theme in Judges is people, this is true of our culture and us right now in this very room, we do bad things, we sin, we are arrogant, we don't believe in God, uh, and I'm saying this kind of holistically, but we also don't realize how bad that is. And we do things we don't realize we're doing wrongly on a regular basis as well. So look for that theme in today's passage, especially we'll, we'll talk about this, but Judges then is this collection of stories, so it's plural, Judges, because it's a collection of story about judges who are not courtroom judges, to be clear, but savior figures who save Israel from occupying nations in spite of their sins. 
then theologically, to kind of tie this into Jesus, is all of the Old Testament serves the purpose of this is more about Christ then than it is about the actual judges and the actual stories themselves in the Old Testament. It's prophetic narrative to point us ahead in, in a way for God to say, this is a promise. I'm giving a dead and dying world. And I'm going to promise through narrative. I'm going to promise through like events and say, look for another judge who's going to live forever and be a perfect version of these lesser judges. And so in that way, we get glimpses of the future that we ourselves now in this point of history on this side of Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection live in. And so a, just a little cheat sheet here to go off of if you're new to this. Um, look, for, look for this as we read from Judges 14 today. It's simple. It's albeit crude because there's more to say about the book than this. But the judges point us to Christ, the ultimate judge. Israel, the people, the sinners, and sometimes the judges too, many times because they're sinners as well, reflect us. Other nations then serve as this kind of type or picture of sin and death, which, biblically speaking, if you kind of back up and get the 30,000-foot view, are the true oppressor, are the true enslaving nation, so to speak, that God is really interested in battling much more than the named nations themselves. And then land and rest. So when people, the people of Israel have this land and they have rest in it, uh, it's a picture of Christ himself, too, who talks about himself in land-like terms in the New Testament, being a portion and things like that. I won't go into that again for today's purposes, but, um, but also to salvation experienced, to be close to God again, and this, these are the whispers ahead of time that we are intended to see for our mutual upbuilding as Christians. And so those of you who are not Christians yet might understand uh, what, self, what the whole story is about, that there are many stories in this book that make up one story, and the one story is about Jesus. The beautiful thing about this approach is that we get glimpses here in the Old Testament of the gospel and, and about Jesus that we just don't get in the New Testament. So if you like symbolism, or even, even if you don't, if you like poetry or narrative, we get aspects of God's character in the gospel here that are unique. And so that's one of the goals today is to see yet another one of, of those in Samson. So today is week two of Samson. Uh, Samson is, um, we looked at his, his birth, his miraculous birth last week and how the angel of the Lord announced that he would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the Philistines are the uh, kind of present, at least in this section of Israel's history and judges, the antagonists, the bad guys, uh, the oppressors that God is going to begin to save Israel from through the hand of the strong man, Samson, who's a Nazarite, not cutting his hair and given amazing physical strength to, to do that. But he's also not doing that too. So just to preface this story, Samson is mingling with the Philistines, and I mean that literally, like he's mingling, he's going to marry one of them, he's not going to fight them like good judges do and what like he was supposed to be doing. It's like there's one point in the job description for judges is fight the oppressors, and he's like not doing it. So, uh, but then later he does, and there's something that incites him, his, his anger, unto that, and so we'll get to that uh, a, little bit, a little bit later. But as we read, look for Samson, how he points us to Christ and how he reflects us in his sin, even simultaneously right within the same narrative. Again, big theme in Judges. A lot of you guys are aware of this. You've seen this, but if you haven't, um, look for these types of uh, lessons, gospel lessons, uh, as it were. So Judges 14, 1 to 20. Let's start in, in verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. This is a, a town in, in Philistia. And Timnah saw, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands, and he went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is with, within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me, 30, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me and do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. All right, so um, <laughs> let's uh, go back and talk about this one. Now, um, Samson is an interesting guy, and, and this is, I don't think I said this before, but I, I think this is kind of subjective to say this. There's a lot of just messy stuff and stories like this in the Bible and in Judges. There are darker passages than this in Judges, but I don't think there's a weirder passage than this. I think this is the oddest one we have out of, out of all the, uh, the um, stories and cycles of, of the Judges' narratives in, in the book. Now, the two angles I want to come at this with, and we've been doing this throughout the, the series, is to look at this, to go back to the cheat sheet idea, look at this from a, a Christ figure perspective. How is Jesus himself embodied in, in Samson in a way, kind of in, in the glimpses of good that we do see in him? And even in spite of that, God uses bad people to image himself. 
a lot. In fact, everybody who mentions Christ in the Old Testament is in some way bad, like really bad sometimes. And so we're not looking for perfect people who are pointing to Jesus with their actions and stories and words and all of that. We're looking for imperfect people who are a shadow of him. And so Samson will be that today. So Samson the Christ figure, but then second, Samson the man, the sinner, and talk about some lessons we learn, how we see ourselves, our own story in him, some lessons we learn there. But then come back with a twist to the story and look a little bit more at this presence of this lion who is torn apart and the role he serves in the story, which is actually quite significant. So we'll, we'll talk about that as it relates to Samson, the man, peace. So kind of two things, but kind of three. Not to be too confusing, but basically two things. So first, Samson, the Christ figure. We'll look at that layer here first from verse 4 especially. But last week we compared Samson's, if you weren't here in chapter 13, Samson's birth narrative and Jesus' birth narrative. We noted the similarities, especially where it reads in Judges 13, he, Samson, will begin to save the Israelites from the Philistines versus the New Testament where it reads, uh, his name will be Jesus because he will save people from their sins. And so in this, Samson becomes what we call a type of Christ, a judge, a savior figure, a deliverer, and a de-oppressor. And the Philistines become a picture of or a type of sin ahead of time. That's the basic interpretational framework with which to approach a passage like this, at least from one angle, even in light of Samson's obvious imperfections and really bad life choices. But then the question is, how is the gospel, of Je- the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection, looked ahead to here, or some related truth imaged uniquely here? How is the gospel imaged uniquely in Judges 14? The answer to that, I think, and we could look at other things too, but I want to focus on this one today. Verse 4, the answer to that question is, is this. He, Samson, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So what makes this so important theologically is that it's a whisper of this statement. At that time, sin ruled over fallen humanity, but Jesus was seeking an opportunity against it or against that sin. Which if you use that language, it, it paints Jesus in this very active, loving, warrior-like role and reminds us that Jesus has a very intentional plan, not, not an accident, back into dying for our sins, an intentional plan to come into the world to, to rescue us and, and save us, the ones he loves, his church. This made me think of in Mark 1, 38, where Jesus says to his disciples, early on in his ministry, he's already doing this, but he says, And he said to them, this tells us a lot about the character of Christ. It's really cool. He says, let us go to the next towns. So they're in some towns doing this, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying Christ is here and preparing hearts and pointing to his death and resurrection, which is still yet to come. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out, to go and seek out and save the lost, to pursue people, to preach the gospel, and to tell people that the dead are going to live. And then in Luke 9, gets more specific on it. Luke 9, 51. This is a huge, if you like outlining books, put a little bracket or a little line right here and say this is a, a, a turning point in Luke where it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. In other words, to die, to rise again, and to ascend to heaven, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father as God the Son. When the days drew near for all of that, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so this is a huge moment because up to this point, he was 
he was born in Bethlehem, but then he went to Egypt for a while to escape the wrath of Herod. Then he came back and, and grew up in Nazareth, which is a town in Galilee, a northern province or region, kind of well north, actually, of Jerusalem and, and this Judean province. But at some juncture, he sets his eyes south and says, as Luke says here, he looks at that province, he looks at Jerusalem, he sets his face, he's resolved to go to die because this is like the hub of all the antagonists of the Gospels, like all of these Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and religious rulers and Jews who wanted to kill Jesus. This is kind of their, their hub. This is their capital, Jerusalem. He set his face to go there knowing he had to die there and it was going to be easier for him to die there, to be rejected innocently, to be put on trial, flogged, crucified so that he might die for the sins of the world. So this is how he's seeking an opportunity, and there's more we could look at, but seeking an opportunity against our sin and against the devil. In other words, Christ is not an aimless teacher, throwing proverbs to the wind, nor nor a king on a throne waiting for people to come and find him. But he's an active, going towards the people, resolved, focused, sin destroyer. That's who he is. That's that's what the New Testament says about him and shows him to be. And that's what Samson, in the story of Samson, Judges 14, whispers him to be as well. He's looking for an opportunity against the devil, against our sin, against death, so that he might be with us us again. And Samson's story helps us to, to see this. So this is, where, this is where this idea starts to preach then. It, that Jesus is not, you know, was and, and is, he is seeking an opportunity against our sin. So try to think about this personally, uh, you know, um, wherever you guys are at spiritually, if you're a Christian or not, um, or, you know, on the threshold of becoming one, Jesus was and is seeking an opportunity against your sin. It's an amazingly loving picture, actually, of Christ and a very, very resolved one. And this means that the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, is not kill your sin. The message of Christianity is not kill your sin. That's a part of the Christian life. But before that and more than that, it's Jesus has sought an opportunity against my sin for me. And he's killed it. You know, so that, that's... Plus, this helps us to see the love of God at a higher level, too. Like, we could ask ourselves at this juncture, like, you know, what motivates a person to fight for another person? There could be impure motives for that, but, but with God, what motivates him? What motivates God to fight for us and to fight for sinners who don't deserve it? And by the way, what other religion can claim a God who fights actual battles for us as well? What other faith can claim that? A God who gets on the ground, front lines, fights for sinners. This is what God does for you, Christian, every day. Do you know this? Do you reflect on this? Is the essence of what you think about every day a God who's like that for you? Or he did it once 2,000 years ago, but now actually the roles are flipped and it's about you fighting for him. Or are you fighting for yourself? Or are you fighting to stay in the faith? That's an extremely, extremely easy theology to embrace and to kind of take on wrongly for Christians and for non-Christians to wrongly think about the faith kind of on the front end, but for Christians to slip back into on a regular basis. If there's too much Christian kill your sin and too little, Jesus has already killed it, it's a really bad recipe, really bad recipe and rarely ends well for, for a, a Christian. 
Love alone must have motivated this. Your status, our status, you guys, before God is not how well we fight our sin, but how well Jesus has. Do you believe it? And that's not a, hey, great, I can do whatever I want now message. Kind of like we sang earlier, no. We can't do whatever we want as Christians saved by grace. We're free, but we're free in order to love now because we've been redeemed by Jesus' blood. We're not our own, as we sang before. And you and I no longer belong to ourselves, but to God. And this is, I'm going to say some statements here. This is hopefully what, as Christians, you, well, hopefully you feel or kind of wrestle to feel or um, understand that you should feel or pray that God would help you feel. Uh, but if not, just reckon, your, reckon with this. You know, so his love, here's the statements, his love has transformed your hearts. His forgiveness has moved your affections. His resolve to be active to destroy your sin every day has stirred in you to be a thankful person and humble. But here's the last question. Or has it done that? And if it hasn't, you have to ask the hard biblical question, am I really a Christian? Is it information for me or a delight? And the only way it becomes a delight is if you really understand how much God loves you, how much he fights your battles every day, and how little it's about you. Not a, he's not a taskmaster or a boss. He's one who set his face toward Jerusalem to go and die, knowing that his time had come to be taken up, to experience a resurrection as a firstfruits for us, that we might experience it later. So free to love, but we don't belong to ourselves. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. You've been purchased. Like the idea of redemption in Judges, you've been bought back from a former way of living, and now you're part of God's family. You've been fought for. You've been died for. You've been loved at the highest level. And it's impossible for that with God's help and his spirit moving for that not to shape the heart. That's where good works comes from. And so in a lot of ways, in fact, Romans 6 or 7, 6 I think, talks about this. We are enslaved just not to sin anymore. We're enslaved to righteousness. We're enslaved to love. We're enslaved to being a son or a daughter of Christ. That's our new, like, allegiance. And so we talk about freedom. That's what, that's what we talk about. The way that, like, a life that just looks Christ-like and looks like a, a life zealous for good works and full of the gospel only comes from a place of looking at verses like verse 4 in Judges 14 and saying, that's my Savior. That's my Christ who actually wanted to save me. And very few people may, maybe have ever wanted to save you or do anything good for you in your life, but that's not what God is like. He's actually wanted to save you. And he does every day. He'll always be there. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Let that love impact your heart and go and live likewise. Okay, the next layer here is Samson the man, the sinner. Um, Peter was mentioning this again before. I think I mentioned that. But um, Samson is a really dynamic character, right? I mean, it hardly even needs to be, needs to be said. I like, I, this week I was comparing him in my mind to uh, villains in stories you can empathize with. You guys know these characters, how you're, you're like, yeah, I, I hate, the, the antagonist here is brutal and I don't like the villain, but I understand how he or she got to be the way they are. I, I, one example I thought of was um, the latest Spider-Man movie, Homecoming. Anybody see that? The, the, uh, 
The villain in it is uh, the vulture, um, which is who again who plays the... Michael Keaton. Thank you. I wasn't going to say him. That's funny. I should know this. Anyway, I'm glad I asked, uh, Peter. The character is fascinating. He's very dynamic. He's a guy that, you know, you, you don't like, but you have a hard time not understanding at the same time because of his story. And I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but um, anyway. And I've heard Thanos is one of these characters in the Avengers thing. I don't, I've never seen the movie. I have no idea what I'm talking about right now because I have not seen it. So I'm not gonna, I can't spoil anything. I just heard that, that he's one of those uh, characters in um, the latest Avengers. But any, anyway, there's pick your, I don't mean to be all superhero-y right now, but um, pick your story, your genre of choice. In reality, though, th- this type of duality you know, between, between singular characters like that shouldn't surprise us because this is every human being's story. You know, I have this conversation with my kids regularly who are, uh, and I don't mean to put this all on my kids, this is an adult thing too, but um, this is just my context. My kids who are inclined to see evil as just out there in other people and to read villains in stories as characters they are very different from. You guys ever had this, parents or just single people, adults, anybody? Like, reading, like you read a villain and you say, that's not me. That's kind of a default perspective sometimes. They're over there in this villain world, and I'm over here. Like, I'm bad, but not that bad kind of thing. So there, there's this instinctual separation. But one of my, to my kids and one of my comments, in those, or my wife's and my comments in those moments are, well, actually, this is a tough thing, you know, for a five-year-old, so, but maybe my older kids. Still, um, actually, we're the bad guys, too. We're a lot, we're a lot like them. In, in the great, I'm talking about this, so in the greater story here of like life, <laughs> existentially, biblically, in terms of what God says, we are the villains. So salvation's tricky then, because it's not like God's fixing the world for us. He needs to fix us, come inside our heart and actually redeem. You know, so, and this is one of the, the many things I love about Judges. Within just a few verses, we go from seeing evil out there in the Philistines. It's objective, and it is to the evil in here with Samson, and it's subjective. The best of heroes have dark sides, and they're part of the problem. And maybe this is why we even like these types of empathizable villains and characters, because at the end of the day, we're like them. Whether we think we're thinking about that or not, we're a lot like them, and because maybe we're drawn to at least the possibility of redemption for those types of, of characters. But back to Samson then, so this is kind of how it plays out in the story. Maybe you just felt this as I was reading. This is the guy with extreme anger issues, sinfully angry guy, lust issues. He demands women. You know, he says, get that woman for me. So woman disrespecting issues. Yet, at this, and other things too we could list here, but he's also at the same time he's tricked by his wife. And then his wife is given to his best man later. And so you're thinking, oh, that's... That's a really raw deal, you know, like that I, that I feel for that guy, you know, and, but I like despise him too, or he's clearly kind of the bad guy, but he's also like used by God here too, so he's clearly the good guy because these Philistines are bad people too, so what is it? You know, it's not this like clear picture of like clarity on morality and clarity on immorality and be this and don't be this. We can't do that with a story like this, but with Christ, the answers become more clear. It's more about him than it is about us then we can kind of sift through that and have uh, clear, clear answers. But anyway, with that said, um, one of the bigger issues to unpack here, though, with Samson, I mean, there could be like five sermons on Samson's bad life choices. 
But one of the bigger sin issues here to unpack is this blatant disregard for God's command elsewhere in the Old Testament to not intermarry with other nations or other peoples. Now, this was not to be clear a command against interracial marriage. Interracial marriage is good. We see that in the Bible. But this is a command against interfaith marriage. God's interest then, and actually now too, we'll see this in a second, is preserving his people spiritually to protect them from syncretizing their spirituality with other pagan religions and peoples and worldviews and, and, and so forth. And also to serve as a physical picture of a future time when his church would be separated kind of similarly but even more. Not, and not just physically so much from other people, but spiritually. And so, so Samson then marrying a Philistine to kind of draw these you know, lines between the shadows and the realities. Samson marrying a Philistine is like a Christian marrying a non-Christian. Samson, a person of God, a Jew, an Israelite of the day, marrying a Philistine, one that was supposed to be driven out of the land, is like, or it's comparable to, a Christian, a person of God, a true spiritual Israelite now in the New Testament, marrying someone outside the faith who is yet to be saved, a a non-Christian. And so in the New Testament, this principle, as we draw more lines into our lives and things here. This is getting specific, but I want to spend a couple minutes on this. This is important. Um, and I don't, yeah, I realized, I realized again, I forgot a slide for this. So if you want to turn here quick in your Bibles, please do or just listen. But 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 17, just uh, skipping down to 17. Um, this is what the Apostle Paul says to a New Testament church on, these ex- on this exact same level. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Be separate from them, says the Lord. So what he's saying here is that this is not an argument for an Amish way of living or anything like that. This is a call for Christians, though we are free to and called to even immerse ourselves in a fallen world for the sake of reaching those who are themselves immersed in death and sin, to still not yoke ourselves too much with unbelievers, specifically not to marry them, or in context here, Paul's talking about just sex, and so there's that kind of wider thing. You could say consummating marriages, but whatever. We'll just say specifically not to marry them. And for Samson, if you guys, well, you know, we'll see this as the story goes on. For Samson, this interfaith marriage thing led to disaster. If you know Solomon's story in the Old Testament, That's like the beginning of the downfall of Israel, like the ultimate. There's lots of downfalls of Israel in the Old Testament, but this biggest kind of climactic one in the Old Testament. The beginning of it was Samson being, Solomon, being a polygamist and marrying people who were not Israelites who led him with their pagan religions away from the one true God. So that's God's ultimate concern. And so we see that this is just two examples we see it play out elsewhere as well. It was not the simple act of marrying a non-Israelite, but it was how their, in these two men's, guys' cases at least, how their wives swayed their affections towards false gods. And so what, what this is saying then, or the Second Corinthians passage that I, I just read here, um, what it's saying is to, to single Christians, and I'll try to address all types of people here today, single Christians, one of the best things you can do, probably the best thing, the best thing you can do in looking for a spouse uh, is to ensure they're not just Christian, but solidly Christian. 
solidly, like actually Christian. Now, it's not just saying they are, but actually Christian. In other words, one, a person who loves you deeply and who would die for you, but who loves Jesus even more. Single Christians, one of the best things you can do in looking for a spouse, look for a solid Christian who actually prioritizes Jesus above you. It's the most loving thing they can actually do for you, is to not make you into a God, but worship God himself and kind of lead you in that capacity and, and love you in that capacity and, and image a right way of living to you and partner with you in that, in that capacity. It's better actually to be single than to be unequally yoked with a spouse. And when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, try to hi- hierarchize. I always try to say this word. It's not a word, but to put this in a hierarchy, uh, to say that single is less than being married, it's not. There's a lot of advantages to being single. The Bible talks about this. But if, if your way of thinking is, well, better to be married, at least, even if they're not totally saved yet or a totally Christian or a little bit different spiritually, better be, better be married to that person than it is to be single. If you're thinking that, the Bible couldn't be more clear that your way of thinking is wrong and unhealthy, and it will lead you probably to disaster. God's will is quite clear for you here. Don't date and don't marry someone who is not in the exact same place as you are spiritually. Now, if you're married to a non-Christian, like, stay married. Like, so in other words, um, if, you're, if you find out after you got married that, whoa, had no idea they weren't a Christian, now what? You know, or one of you, one of you you're not Christian when you get married, but one of you becomes a Christian after you get married, stay married. Doesn't mean that you're, the Bible talks about this too elsewhere. Uh, not going to quote it today, but it doesn't mean that your marriage is doomed necessarily or that you're living outside of God's will in that situation. Just, here's the warning stay especially on guard to not be influenced spiritually by them, but pray that they be influenced spiritually by you. That, that's, that's the big warning is just, and that might come at great cost. That might come at feelings of being very different from them spending time apart, you value coming to church and they're just not with you, you have kids in that mix, it's even more messy. It might even mean divorce someday because not that you should seek that out, but they might because they feel so different than you, but divorce is better than you going to hell. Right? It's better. doesn't mean that you should seek it out, but if there's a danger of, of your spouse influencing you away from Christ, um, then that's a better thing. That's like kind of pick your poison, right? But there is a better thing in that situation. Uh, so if you are find yourself in that situation, hear all that as well. It doesn't mean that you should bail ship. Stay married. Pray that they'll be influenced by you, not the other way around. And another way to look at it too, for those of you, all of you, married or not, w- when you think about um, Christian friendship, this is, uh, the idea here is you ten- we all tend to become like those we hang around right? We tend to become like those we hang around. This, this is a huge apologetic for the church and uh, for Christian friendship, just in general. Not only because it will help you persevere and finish the race in the faith and form you more into Christ's image, because if you want to become like Jesus, hang out with his body, the church. You can't become more like Jesus alone. It's impossible. You can become like those you hang out with. To hang out with Jesus is to believe the gospel to receive the Holy Spirit and to hang out with other Christians. So not only those things, but it will also, if you have that kind of home base of Christian friendship idea, it will free you up to have 
really good friendships with non-Christians without the danger of you acquiescing to their fallen worldview and harmful ways of living. So just this is a, la- a final warning here if it wasn't clear. On the friendship level, this is a marriage thing too, it can be, but on the friendship level, if you are a Christian and you have no true Christian friendships and no local church, your chances of staying Christian are quite low. You might, but you'd be the exception. Uh, many times in the Bible, we see this kind of this big thing happen where people abandon God because they become like their friends who are not their spouses, friends who are not Christians. It, it happens all the time, you guys. If you've never seen it, I don't even know what to say. Like you're like the one person maybe who hasn't seen that happen. But most people in the room have seen that happen with a close friend or in maybe some kind of marital situation and have heard about it at least. Uh, it happens all the time. And it's a warning here. Get yourself around Christian friends in the local church. And as you think about marriage, apply this to, to that situation as well. And singles, embrace your singleness. Uh, it might feel like it's not great sometimes, but it's much better than marrying a non-Christian. You, you need to, we need to hear that uh, as the Bible dictates it. So, Okay. This last piece, bring us all back then to Judges 14. There's a bit of a, a twist here, and it relates to what we just talked about. And that is, even though it says earlier that Samson's seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, he's also in love with one. You guys see how this plays out in Samson's life? Even though in one verse he's like, okay, seeking an opportunity against him, he's in love with one and he marries one. And up to this point, he's not fighting against them like all of the judges do elsewhere in this book. He's like the one judge, again, there's one job description. It's like fight the oppressors. He doesn't do it. He's the one judge who like fails. Even like all the bad judges still do that. Samson's the one who's like, at least at this early part of the juncture, he's not intending to go out and do this. So that's narratively kind of how it plays out. In the first part of 14, his like birth has been built up. All these expectations around, whoa, this is going to be this amazing guy. And he just marries one. And he has no intent to, he's eating with them. He's marrying one. He's all, all this stuff. Their whole point for existing, these judges, are to fight these oppressors. And not, a, not only that, but on, on top of it, Israel is not crying out for deliverance. Do you guys remember the cycle of, of the judges? Those of you who have been here for this series, there's a cycle, a repeated cycle. People get oppressed, then they do what? The Israel gets oppressed, they cry out for help. They say, this isn't a good thing. This is a bad situation. God help us. We're in trouble. This is the one cycle where they never do that. They never cry out for help. The judges are marrying the people. They should be expulsing from the land. The people of Israel are like, we're not that bad. These people aren't that bad. You know, yeah, the religious views are totally whacked, but maybe they're right about some things. This is basically like the the equivalent of, you know, a Christian today, you know, hanging out with these people and realizing you know what, maybe sex trafficking isn't that bad of a thing after all. Maybe I'm pretty amazing. Maybe I'm the best, per, the best thing this world has to offer. Like, it's all about me. You know, so it's like an arrogant thing or something like that. When we start to entertain sexual sin or arrogance or, or stuff like that, that's the equivalent of what's happening here, a syncretism or a way of thinking about God that is unbiblical. You know, so entertaining heresy and, and, and things of that, of that nature. So there is this widespread syncretism, and this is why I titled the sermon this way, a mingling with the Philistines that's happening. 
But, but here's the thing. There's one thing that helps incite Samson's anger against the enemies of God's people who were oppressing them, right? There's one thing. What makes him angry? What incites his anger to get to this point? If you kind of go back and trace it backwards in the story, it's this lion, right? This whole lion incident where he came roaring out of wherever and seemed, seeming to attack Samson, and Samson rips him apart like, I like how it says, like a normal person rip apart a baby goat. You know, like, that seems hard too, but... Anyway, tears apart this lion and then goes away, comes back. Some bees found the carcass and made a very normal, right? Like everyday occurrence. Some bees find, make a, this honeycomb, this hive, and there's, they work fast apparently and there's honey already. And he goes back, scoops some out, gives some to his mom and dad. They're just kind of jawing it up. It's just weird. This is why the story is odd. You know, it, it just comes out of nowhere. But here's the thing. If this lion whole incident didn't occur, Separation between the Philistines and Israel may never have happened. Because the context for Samson to get angry would never have occurred. You see what I'm saying? If the whole lion thing didn't happen, then the context for Samson to get angry with the whole riddle thing and his wife tricking him and all of that, then all of that wouldn't have occurred. And then the full-blown separation that God was intending in the beginning between God's people and these oppressors wouldn't have happened. Samson probably would have grown old and gray and just had more kids and syncretized completely, become completely not a person of the God of the Bible and worshipped the God of the Philistines named Dagon. And they, their kids would have done that and Israel would have lost its kind of ethnic identity but also their spiritual identity. That's what would have happened. That's where this is headed. And then this lion comes out of nowhere, roars at Samson, torn apart, and breeds honey somehow and then becomes this context for anger. So, why is this important? And in order to understand this, we've got to remember, or if you're hearing this for the first time, understand this, this forward-pointing nature of elements like this in the story, and and that Jesus Christ himself fulfills not only the good parts, but as we said before, the bad parts as well, as one who was killed, judged, exiled, torn apart for others and us especially when those bad things happen in association with salvation. In this case, exactly like the lion. Caesarius of Arles uh, said back in the late 400s AD, so a very early commentator on this passage. I'll just uh, read from him here. Um, this is an excerpt. And, but he says, to begin, many of the fathers have spoken a great deal about this lion. When he says many of the fathers, he's referring to people who are Christians who are actually older than he was. So think early church fathers, people who lived decades uh, to centuries after Christ and commented on the Bible. These writings are all preserved. We have these things. And this guy's one of them, lived quite early. And with Judges 14 before him, he writes in, in comment. And he says, Many of the fathers have spoken a great deal about this lion, beloved brothers. And all of them have said what is fitting and in accord with the facts. Some have said the lion prefigured Christ our Lord. Truly, this is very appropriate, for to us, Christ is a lion in whose mouth we have found the fruit of honey after his death. What is sweeter than the word of God, or what is stronger than his right hand? So just a quick sidebar here before we unpack this whole idea is, and an encouragement for you as you read your own Bibles, like by yourself or with other people. This isn't always true, but when things get really weird in a story, 
Jesus is usually there. When things get really odd and weird, like when lions have honey pour out from them and stuff and they come out of nowhere, there's usually a gospel lesson in it. And so, like in this case, in other words, and to kind of pull a little bit from uh, Caesarius here of Arl, but also from uh, what the early fathers had said and what I'm saying, what I think God is intending us to see here, sort of in connection with Samson, is that Christ is called a lion elsewhere in the Bible, many times. And he was the lion who, as Revelation 5 5 and 6 says, became a lamb and was sacrificed and suffered and was torn apart and died. So Revelation 5, it says, this is a vision John gets about heaven, but he sees Jesus as like a lion, but also like from another angle, he's kind of like a lamb who was slain. So if you blend those things, Jesus is the slain lion as well, just like we see here in Judges 14. But not only is Jesus like this lion who was slain, he is also like the lion who was slain who provided the honey of salvation for us, food for us through his death, whose body nourishes, as Jesus says elsewhere, eat my body and drink, drink my blood. And if you look at Judges 14 through this lens, it makes sense that we'd see something die in connection with Israel's deliverance from the Philistines. The lion's death serves as the eventual thing, as we said before, that incites Samson to kill the enemies, the Philistines. So then you could say, indirectly, the lion's death saves Israel from the Philistines. Indirectly, but still very intentionally, the lion's death is the thing that saves Israel from the Philistines. God giving that implicitly into the story. Just like Jesus saves us from our sins and separates our sin from us, like we sang earlier, and like the Psalms say in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's part of what salvation is, is this idea that God's taking our sins, it's a thing, it's an entity, he's removing it from us, just like the Philistines were removed from Israel in connection with this, with this dead lion who was killed and torn apart, exactly like Christ. And also to pull from Caesarius of Arles, he says also in a riddle kind of way, Jesus is said to be God's mystery. In Colossians 2, God's mystery is Christ. So, you know, when the Bible says that Jesus is the resolver of all tensions, the clarifier of all cryptic passages, he is also the ultimate answer to all riddles. And in this story, the ultimate answer to Samson's riddle and how the Philistines answer it later in the passage. In other words, what is stronger than a lion? Jesus is. What is sweeter than honey? Honey that feeds us? His death. And so the lion is the answer. A, a few final things here on this. Um, the story goes nowhere without the lion. Nowhere. It would have a very, very different ending if the lion didn't die. Just like our lives have a very, very different ending if Christ didn't die. It was torn apart. We can believe this or we can reject it, but that is the gospel. Do we believe God came into the world to be torn apart for us? Do we believe that we didn't have a hand in separating sin from ourselves? Just like Samson and Israel did not have a hand, an ultimate hand, an ultimate guiding hand in separating themselves from the Philistines. That this is the rub. What do we believe? Did we fight? Or did Jesus fight for us, as we saw earlier? Did we separate sin from ourselves, or did it have more to do with the lion? 
The lion really is the answer to the riddle of this path. The whole passage is like a riddle, right? It's like, what does this mean? It's weird. It's crazy. It has a bunch of oddities in it coming out of nowhere. The lion is the key to understanding it as we connect it with Christ. The lion of Judah is the answer. And sometimes this passage gets reduced to a simple call to not commit sexual sin like Samson's doing. And in one sense, one underlying message here is that sexual sin will lead all of us to disaster, disaster, if we follow that path. But notice here in the passage, the solution is not with Samson himself. The solution is with the lion, who again incited separation between Samson and the woman and Israel and the Philistines. Jesus' death is the solution, not your willpower. The message, of the, the, the message of this passage and the whole Bible is not try hard not to commit sexual sin. That's not the message. If you think it, or something like that, if you think it is, get it out of your head. The message is more in line with there's this lion who was torn apart and somehow, somehow, by God's design, that's the thing that took sin from us. That's the thing that saved us. That's the thing that incited God's anger against our sin, not us. That's the beautiful thing in the Gospels. If you believe in Jesus, God is extremely angry then against your sin. His wrath is poured out upon his son on the cross, not on you, not on me, not on us. But rather, we have no condemnation anymore, as Romans 8.1 says. But our sin is condemned, but we're no longer condemned. That, that's, that's the good news. That's true for us today if we believe in the Gospel. And so a final thing uh, here is just to see this, that the Lion of Judah is the answer. There's a lot more to say about this. We could spend uh, a lot of time, but um, I want to encourage you to see a glimpse of Jesus' resolve in Samson's resolve. See a glimpse of Jesus' death in the Lion's death. See him as the answer to all of life's riddles. If you feel there's chaos in your life, unanswered questions about theology or life or just your future, if you're stuck under the thumb of sin, if you're depressed, if there's anxiety, if there's any kind of like question or, or tension or chaos or issue, any kind of riddle, Jesus is the ultimate answer. God loves you. God sent his son to die for you. That actually is enough. It may not feel like it is all the time, but it's enough. Receive that as the, the chaos easing thing. And also remember with the gospel, I mean, this, this is the ultimate riddle of the whole Bible. I kind of said this, but I didn't really say it. How can a sinner be reconciled with the holy God? How can a sinner, it's sort of like answer me this, you know, to kind of go back to Samson's words. How can a sinner be reconciled to a holy God? It's impossible. Jesus himself says it's impossible to be saved. But not with God. Not unless God becomes a human being and is torn apart for us in our place. That's the answer to the riddle, which isn't super easy to swallow, right? It's a very humbling thing, that God, loving thing, but a very humbling thing because that screams that we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. Receive the love of God who came into the world to suffer in the capacity he did, way more than this lion did, actually. This lion had it really easy compared to what Jesus went through for you. Believe it, receive it, See his resolve, see his death, see that he is the, the resolver of the tension of a, of a cryptic passage and the chaos of our lives and the chaos of sin. 
And then, like, you know, the, the people in the story got, actually, Samson gave them these wealthy linens, these expensive linens, 30 linens to wear. They were covered. I mean, G- Jesus makes us spiritually wealthy. We're rich in Christ. Not physically in this life, necessarily, but in Christ we have spiritual wealth. We're lavished upon, Ephesians 1 says, with grace. Grace. And we have everything we'll ever need, like temporarily the Philistines had in these, in these shirts. I mean, it all comes together. God wants to give you a gift. The gift is his son who is torn apart for you. Will you receive it or not? Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, today for the gospel. Uh, thank you for dying for us and rising again. Thank you for being the thing, the inciting thing, the saving thing, the thing that comes in between us and sin and separates us from all that we've done against people and ourselves to harm uh, in offense to you. And, and things we don't even realize we're doing, as we talked about earlier too, uh, the we just don't know how bad we are. Uh, but God, thank you that the biblical story is like, the whole thing is like you making villains into good people. That's the whole story. You coming into the world and making villains good uh, and saving them in spite of their villainry, uh, but making them good, dying for all that they've done and making them part of your family by dying for them so that they didn't have to experience capital punishment for they deserved for their sin. That's us. Uh, Father, help us to reckon with these stories. The Bible is full of people getting sacrificed, torn apart, killed, judged, rejected. They're all pictures of Jesus ahead of time. He is the one who was ultimately exiled from you so that we might enter your family. Um, God, if we don't believe that yet, if we think we're a Christian, but we don't believe that, we're not a Christian. Help us to believe that. Put faith, actually actual faith in you and not ourselves. Maybe we run it for the first time today. Uh, forgive us, God, when we don't believe that or live that. And if the people aren't here yet or are Christians, not yet Christians, I pray for them too. You love them. Help them believe the right things about the gospel, kind of a la Judges 14 here. So in any case, help us to respond uh, with thankfulness and, and praise to the one who laid down his life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as